Ladies and gents, it's now time to go down those deep, dark paths, those paths that we know and are led by our buddy Luther. And we're finishing up season one, episodes four through six. And what a stellarific stuff we've got to go through. So joining me, because my head's full of spiders, is Jason Johnson. Good news, guys. I got a new job as a cab driver. Ooh. Eric Scott. Hey, I've got some uh, diamonds for sale for you. They've only been lightly digested. Ooh, sounds yummy. Sean Shibley. Any criminal worth their salt knows the resale value of diamonds is ridiculously low. That shouldn't have happened. <laughs> and our Sherpa guiding us through the, uh, the Liverpool and London area is Devin Higgins. Remember, gents, don't bring a double-barreled shotgun to a knife fight. Too soon. Devin, why don't you lead us through as we start our ascent into uh, madness with episode four? Okay, so, well, let's take a half step back, because when we last left John Luther at the end of episode three in our last show... Luther was in a good spot. I mean, everything that seemed to be going his way that could have gone his way is going his way. Uh, of course, the series opened with him dealing with a guy named Henry Madsen. Henry Madsen is now dead, and Luther has is cleared of any implications in that by Martin Shank. And after he gets that particular case done, he goes home and finds his estranged wife, Zoe, there. And relations carry on as he is hoping they are. So this episode, episode four, doesn't pick up right after that, but it picks up pretty much same night, different location. And we've got an interesting crime in this one. It opens in a brief form with a man standing over a prostrate woman who is dead on the ground somewhere in London. And her items are a lot that was taken out of her purse are kind of arranged around her in some weird, bizarre sort of thing. So this episode deals with Luther trying to track this guy down, and it's much more of a domestic drama, not for so much for Luther, but for the guy he's trying to chase. So why don't we open there, gents? How did you take the crime here in episode four? It felt like seven in a way with the arrangement of things. And I think one of the the big notes for the crime is that all these characters seem like everyday people. Like the the gent who is the murderer seems like such a real grounded person. It didn't seem like, oh, I know this guy's the bad guy because he's being played by X. You know, it, it, that that Max von Saito type thing where it's like, oh, he's obviously the, the murderer. Everybody seemed like like you, you could have been sitting inside these uh, scenes with them. Yeah, I was kind of thinking it might be like some kind of like like cult kind of murder because the, the way she was laid out, you know, in like a cross position with like the stuff like in an arc around her head. It looks, looks kind of like a, you know, not tarot card kind of thing, but some kind of like deliberate, like, you know, occult kind of practice. Uh, maybe because I am a true detective fan, I kind of was nonplussed by this. Like, like, okay, yeah. <laughs> Why is that? Have you seen the show? I have not, but uh, th- based on that, I'm still curious about your input on it. Um, 
just the first season, there's all sorts of like ritualistic killings that people arranged in weird places and stuff. Okay. Now, because we have this setup here in episode four, and we know what had happened in episode three with Lucian Burgess and the fact that his was very steeped in the occult, was that more? Did you have? Was it a continuation of that same thing for you here, or or did you find as this episode progressed, your your view on it changed? So, um, I'll be honest, I didn't care about the crime in episode three. I was, you know, that didn't really matter to me, but I think maybe it's a combination of having two serial killers back to back. And um, what I will say is I really do like the acting and the way people are behaving because um, the one last time was a little cartoon villain for my taste. I could I could see that. You know, I mean, like, I don't mean, like, in a cartoon. I mean, just, like, cartoonishly evil. While this one, it seems more, like, uh, like a deeply disturbed... Like like most says, an everyday person, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I, you can see this guy. From a crime standpoint... Go ahead, most. No, go ahead. I was, I, I was just saying, like, you could see this guy on the street and not think twice about him. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, from a, from a series standpoint, this, this crime kind of... I feel like the show kind of has two different crime types. You've got your crime of the week, actual crime procedural show. And this felt more in that vein, whereas some of the episodes are more, there's a crime, but it's really leading to drama within the personnel. Not that they all don't have some drama, but you know what I'm saying? This was a, this was a crime of the week, a police procedural type. And as we'll get to in the next couple, it kind of veers off later into uh, the crime is the, the characters as opposed to the character solving the crime. Mm-hmm. So, well, and let's transition into how this crime is solved because, um, as has been stated, this is not just a one-off occurrence. As we find out, once the body's discovered, that this is the third victim that's occurred in about the last five or six weeks, and there's a frequency showing that these murders are escalating. Now, one thing that's of note is that these attacks are, while they result in in their targeting women, and they are ultimately fatal. There is no blood and there is no brutality. So unlike what happened with Burgess, where, you know, you walk in and the walls are literally written on in blood, it's just there's no real sense of of somebody going out of their way to really, like, send a message or prove a point. But then you have Luther, Ian, and Ripley all trying to figure out who this guy is and how they can stop him. And they go about it in a couple of interesting ways. How did you take how the detective work was done here in episode four? I I have this issue with BBC stuff. And this is this is only because I am not familiar with the country. But it seems as though everything in the country has closed caption video surveillance at at, at a disposal that is almost ridiculous. That's actually uh, true. That's that's very true. I, I, how? I mean, I guess living There's in America, see- you just you just don't, it's just different. But I'm amazed by it. Well, also you have to understand. I mean, America is a pretty big dispersed country, right? Um, but yeah, no, the CCTV system in in England is legendary, and it is. Yeah, that's how it works. They are in a surveillance state. Yeah, and according to the information I found on it, that looks like that goes back to starting even around 2000, even before that, where that looks like that was something that was going to be set up uh, in the UK. So 
Um, yeah, it is something that is pretty consistent across uh, UK fictional storytelling. But again, I think that's like a lot of devices we use here because it's something that is so readily available to people over there. It's just an integrated, understood thing that they can incorporate into their stories to give it a little extra realism. And and see, for me, that be, that becomes like if if I don't if I I have to think in that world because otherwise the script starts to feel like they're cheating. Like, oh, we just go to the cameras or put a trace on this guy, and then that's it. And so. Sometimes I, I, I kind of just have to disbelieve and just and just go with it, but I don't like to. Um, yeah, a while ago I spent a summer at Cambridge, and um, I was surprised at the sheer number of cameras when I would visit London. Well, in, in some respects it helps them out later on in the case, but at first it kind of throws them off because what they – kind of postulate is that because the drop sites for the victims that have been found so far are separated out, the only consistency is they're near basically what are are large apartment buildings. They call them trading estates in the UK. The only way you get stuff there without being seen is if you have a vehicle large enough to operate kind of under the radar. So they're going after a guy who they think is where they dub him white van man because they figure, okay, that's the easiest way to both kill a person and then dispose of the body in a way that you're not going to have prying eyes like in. And as we go along, we start to understand through Luther, Ian and Ripley kind of talking it out going, well, that isn't quite consistent with what is happening here because not only are these women being targeted, but the way that their bodies are being left and how there's things that are kind of laid out around their possessions that they have on them uh, at the time they die there is also something missing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and watching him go through giving these trinkets to his wife, I found, I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's so disturbing. And yet, like, I almost feel for the, per- for the, for the, the, this guy because he's doing it for, oh, this sounds, sounds so creepy, but he's doing it for all the right reasons because his uh relationship is breaking down which we we don't really know but luther figures out which you know he puts all his pictures out and i swear to you when he puts all of his pictures out david bowie style i think that he does that in every every episode and he only does it in this episode but i swear it feels like he does it all the time actually he does that in the next one mm. uh in in this one it's more of just trying to do kind of a uh or no, I stand corrected. He does do that. So looking over my notes on it. Um, I do like it, though, when, when Ripley comes in and sees what he's doing and, and Luther explains it to him and Justin asks him, you know, you're a David Bowie fan. He goes, what, I don't look like a David Bowie fan. <laughs> and then he comes back and says, okay, fine, I'll make you a tape. And then Justin's like, a tape? Good God, man, how old are you? But well, well, you don't, you don't still have tapes. Wait, I'm confused. Yeah. Right. But but considering how we to this point have seen Luther, as we've alluded to, being five minutes ahead of the script and being able to kind of piece together things that way, even though it is a little bit weird the fact that that he uses um, the Bowie technique, do you find that it works in this instance to kind of help build him up as a character, or do you still think he's there, that Neil Cross, the writer, is kind of sticking to that five minutes ahead of everybody else. 
sort of idea. It didn't strike me as glaring as, oh, you didn't yawn, you're a sociopath. Yeah, but it, 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 they are going to go out of their way to make Luther beyond the others, right? I mean, it's, yeah. the show is Luther. Sure. But, it, it, yeah, I'll agree. This was a lot better of an attempt at it than we've seen in previous. The writing's definitely kind of coalescing, I feel. Well, and, and here he's locked in a bottle. He's locked in that office. So he can't go and just be Luther, in a sense, combing the streets. He's doing this all from the office. And, and that's a good point. Did I did I miss that? Is is there an actual like a reason? Because we thought you know he was cleared before, and now he's locked in the office again. And I was kind of like, and I then in the next episode and we'll get to it later. But he's back on the street, and I kind of got whiplash of is he in? Is he out? What's, what's yeah? The status what of Luther's I, I can't remember why he is been he's been relegated to the office. Essentially, he was grounded because they know that he wasn't implicated in the death of Henry Madsen, but because. His name is still out there. It's one where they've got to basically, he's got to be on his best behavior for the time being because that now threatens the unit as a whole. So Teller's got to basically say, okay, you're stuck here. You've got to, you know, because we've got to be able to figure out that everything is on the level. And maybe that's America versus other country, you know, BBC channel thing, but they didn't ever say that. And I kind of was looking for a, uh, a statement at some point saying that and then clearing him or, or releasing him for duty or something. Cause it just never felt said. They did mm-hmm. say it. They basically did say it when they talked, like, did you have anything to do with this? Did you really have anything to do with this? You know? And it became like a Caesar's wife must be beyond repute. So until they could prove that he was nowhere near there and had nothing to do with it, they just didn't want him causing any more trouble. And Madsen wakes up in this episode. No, no, Madsen is already dead. Madsen was eliminated at the end of episode three. Uh, no, he was he was killed in this episode. No, it was, it was this one. Yeah, it oh, was, was this it one. this one? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, she Alice disguises herself as a doctor and like sets like a fire somewhere across the building and then has the one guard help go and then she walks in there and smothers him to death. Right. Okay. So, my bad. My, See, my, I'm still recovering from St. Patrick's Day, guys. I'm a little out of it. <laughs> my big question here is how does someone of her supposed intelligence not conceal her most distinguishing feature. Her hair? No, her uh, dichromatic eyes. eyes. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I didn't notice it. Pride. Well, and actually, in Alice actually does not have heterochromatic eyes. She put in a squirrel in one to make it that way. Oh, okay, then no, that was smart then. I completely misread that So scene. yes, that's why she used it as a way to throw off the guard. Ah, uh, smart have, cookie. Yeah, so, so reverse so, that. Yes. Reverse that. That was actually so, clever. <laughs> so, no, I promise people, we did actually watch these three episodes. Yeah. We're not just kind of, we're not piddling around the dark here. So, uh, but let's talk a little bit about Graham Shand, who is the, he is the baddie in this one. But is he really a baddie? I mean, uh, he seems like a, he's, I mean, like, as we've established, he's not Lucian Burgess. He's not Henry Madsen. But he's a guy who is he's breaking down a bit and and from what we see especially in the way he interacts with his wife and the guy that his wife appears interested in mm-hmm. that plays a lot into what we get uh over the uh, over the end of this episode where he stops going after women and tries to basically go after the guy who wants to take his wife from him 
I'm going to say once you engage in systematic murder, you're the baddie. Um, now, unlike the last one, he, he's more psychotic and less evil, but well, still and I th- the baddie. I think there, yeah, there's a, there's a psychological element in here, and it's like, well, what makes a man? And we, it, it's very, it's touched on very slightly that through the kind of a fair boyfriend that he's impotent, and so that impotence somehow through these murders he kind of it cures him of his impotence it, you know this um overwhelming uh almost sexual satisfaction of murdering these women somehow changes his actual physical uh impotence which and was I'm, strange also the the parallels to luther's situation are kind of screaming yes mhm and it, it's interesting to note that how Graham is actually able to pull this off is he's actually not a taxi cab driver. He fixes taxi. But what he managed to do was is he got his hands on a secondhand taxi and just was able to clone the license plates, which for all that we've been talking about with in a heavy surveillance state is still something that, according to what Ian Ripley and Luther find out, it's relatively easy to do. You just like go to an auction, you pick up a secondhand cap for a couple hundred quid, and then you figure out a way to swap the license plates out, which if you work as a mechanic and you're going through and seeing all these cabs every day, there's not a whole lot of skullduggery here. It's just utilizing opportunities and then using that to, again, exploit what he does to get what he needs. Yeah, I mean, he is obviously definitely messed up, which is why he's doing what he's doing. But yeah, I mean, the, the way he's like, you know, gets, you know, aroused by you know killing people and stealing their stuff and giving it to his wife as a present, and then you know they get all he gets all happy and you could tell that their marriage wasn't quite right because the first time when they're going upstairs for the first time, like that look on her face was just like like disgust, like oh mm-hmm. god, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. here we go, and then later at the uh, karaoke bar or whatever when he, you know he's telling the the one friend like hey you know we did it and whatever i'm like oh good lord i'm like you know he's just like going on about how wonderful and great and like dude you know that that was i think for anybody who has ever been in that situation where you're out at a social occasion and there's always somebody and it's not gender exclusive who starts going off in that sort of a direction it yeah where you just kind of you cringe a bit you're just like dude just let it go. I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> TMI, so, TMI. Right. Yeah. So this actually, ironically enough, reminds me of a character in Punisher Max, who was a very similar sort to this guy. Except the difference is he witnesses the Punisher kill people, and that gives him the idea to go around and do that to make himself feel better. Um, mm. Also, like, I buy this because I've recently been researching uh, kidnapping American citizens for ransom, and the effect, like how that is actually prevalent in the world, and it's almost always through fake taxis. Mm. Huh. Okay. Nice. Well, and to your point, Sean, when you mentioned how this dynamic between Graham and his wife, in some ways, not all of them, parallels what's happening with John and Zoe, we don't see a whole lot of Zoe in this episode. We see her a little bit because she has come back home and is now trying to figure out how to resolve her conflict with between John and Mark, and she knows that, and Mark can tell that something is up. He's not an idiot, but 
it also doesn't help that um, after Luther slams the door on Alice for taking care of Henry, where does she go? She shows up on Mark's doorstep too. How did you, how was that scene received by you guys? Because to me, that was one of the, the funnier points in what is not a particularly funny episode. I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that, yeah, that's what was going to happen, you know? Um, I wasn't yeah, expecting that to give her credit. Yeah. To go where it went. Alice, Alice definitely consistently does what you expect Alice would do. I mean, you know, I mean, she surprises you with the way she comes up with things, but I, I definitely appreciate the consistency of her character. You know, she gets the door slammed in her face. What's she going to do? She's going to react. She's going to change the state of play as we've referenced before. Yeah, and it seemed like Ruth Wilson especially was having a lot of fun in that scene, just with the way she was trying to explain it in hand gestures and and stuff. I I can imagine that behind the scenes, everybody was cracking up a bit at how she managed to pull that off. But now, since Alice has gone and disposed of Henry Madsen for John, who does that bring back into it? But as I said at the end of our first episode, we get the return of Martin Shank. And he's clearly now a man on a mission. Yeah, he's the the, the hunter of hunters. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, speaking of the, the, the triangle between John, um, <clears throat> Mark, and Zoe, now you put Alice into the mix as well. And yeah. Basically, John, well, Zoe kind of dumps Mark for John, and John, basically, because Alice kills Madsen, he dumps Alice for Zoe. And so you have that scene with Alice and Mark, like, having, having that little bit of a talk together. And so it's these weird pairings of people that shouldn't really be paired together. Like, you can, you can see... Well, John should be with Alice, and at the end of the day, Mark should be with Zoe. But that's just not what's going to happen. We got we have to like manage these triangles over each other. Yeah, and and ironically, it's not any of those four characters who really kind of lay out why this is causing such friction. But it's when uh, after Alice calls Luther. And Luther lies to Ripley and Teller, saying it was Zoe on the phone. Teller says a rather poignant thing in that women think men can change, but they don't. Men don't think women will change, but they do. And to me, when she mentions that, it, it that is the uncomfortable bow that ties all four threads together mm-hmm. of how, you know, Zoe wanted Luther to change to an extent, and he thinks he tried to, but obviously he didn't, and Luther thinks that Alice might change if he can kind of keep her on the straight and narrow, but she goes in a different direction. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, and this episode kind of, I had been running on the Luther is Batman. Right. um, Mm -hmm. And he's now... He's leaning towards Admiral Hux and less Batman. Well, all right, which which, which Admiral Hux? Uh, the one from the new trilogy of Star Wars movies, the the, the screamy one. Uh, the one from Force Awakens, because there's there's two yeah. different Huxes. Yeah, yeah, the one. Okay, yeah. okay. Hux the younger. 
Right, gotcha. So yeah, and and with with Shank now back on the case, it's interesting when he pulls Luther aside and you know with Luther on this case of trying to track Graham down, he can be accounted for. There's nothing that really comes right out and says, well, obviously John had a hand in this or somehow John's directly connected to it. And he knows it's suspicious, but I love that line where he's, he says the timing of it just chafes my brain where this is a guy who spends, he's been on the force a long time and he knows what to look for. And being able to take that in and hone that in to try and figure out what happened in this case. And as we'll see over the next two episodes, how this also pans out with Shank for the rest of the season. To me, for a guy who came in kind of midstream, Shank is very easily becoming one of my favorite characters on the show. How is he for you? Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely agree with that. Uh, in case you didn't get it from the first, my, my opinion of him in the first episode. Yeah. I, Anytime he's on the scene, the screen, I'm I'm paying attention to what he does. He's definitely um, reacting and and asking the questions that kind of are furthering the interesting parts of the plot for me. So it's kind of interesting to see where those those pieces go and how he reacts to them. Yeah, he's the guy that you don't want to have him asking questions to you because you feel like you you're you're about to trap yourself. You know, he it's not. It's what he's not saying and what he's observing, and that's like a, just a, a combination that you just don't want in an interrogation room or even just in the office. It's like he he knows something, but just is putting that string together. Yeah, yeah, he's been on the force a long time, and you know he's probably been in this role for a long time, and you know he knows when things don't add up, and he knows that you know that this is really suspicious that you know. He, you know, the the guy wakes up, they've been waiting for for a long time to get out of the coma, and then boom, he's dead. Like, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of liken him to Commissioner Gordon. You know, he, like, he gives Batman rope, but is, like, implying the hammer if he goes too far. Yeah. he's He, he is the smartest man in the room, but he doesn't want anyone to know it. Total mm. Columbo. He's Columbo of the 21st century. There we yeah, are. Yeah, but he does it without Columboing you, which is an even more interesting way of going about it. So, really quick, because we still got a lot to get to, let's wrap this episode up because we've got two big things that happen here. And it starts with the conversation between John and Graham's wife, Linda. And this is something that I'm not used to really seeing in a lot of American shows where the cops tend to be either if they're dealing with a suspect, then they're all gung ho, good cop, bad cop. Whereas if they're talking with a witness or like a family member, they tend to wear softer gloves. John doesn't wear softer gloves in this conversation. Uh, in fact, Teller gets to the point where she asks him flat out, aren't you being a bit merciless about this? Uh, how did you guys uh, take this one? Yeah, I, I don't mean, think it's, he it's, was, she, she was ever a witness in his mind. I think she was a suspect from the get-go. I don't, I don't know that he ever treated her like a, witness for the strict reason that he always knew that she she knew more than than she may not have been in on the crimes but she definitely had a, a history there and it, it definitely played out i think yeah i mean she, she knew something was wrong obviously it's just she just wasn't being too forthcoming like whether she's trying to protect her husband or just didn't want to convince herself that he was the one that was doing this and you know john's just like you know i got no time for this and i just got you know i'm gonna get right to the point i'm gonna you know 
I'm, I'm going to basically break you and get you to you know help. Yeah. Is this the precursor of John in the next few episodes, like a um, uh, Kuleshov, not Kuleshov, um, uh, what you call it's gun, um, Chekhov, Chekhov's Check- Check- gun, where it's Chekhov, it's it's Luther's anger and his frustration manifest it, because he wants to get this guy, and in later episodes, that frustration could kill him, or lead him to a different decision let's just say like this this is the precursor of of seeing luther's volatility in action yeah i can see that because the frustration that he has understanding that he's on a clock and and understanding over the course of the episode that this has been escalating and now that they've got a pretty good bead on why and where it's going to go there comes the point where you have to make the decision of, do I push that button or not? Do I go down this road or not? And even though it may be above board and it may be everything in line with what you do as a detective, it's still something that from a, a, I guess from a, a respectability standpoint, you're going, man, you're, you're really digging your hands in the mud here. But if it gets the guy at the end of it and saves another person getting killed, then so be it. As he says, the approach is for the greater good. So, we end this with Graham paying a visit to Linda's suitor and things going, as we expected, totally sideways. Now, Graham knew at this point that something was up because when Ripley went and got Linda, she called Graham and said, what did you do? So that's really the catalyst for him going off and when when he gets to the house and it's not just a fact of just choking the life out of the guy that, that is interested in his wife, he stones his head in, basically. Yeah. And then I... when and when we find out that, that Linda's Linda's uh suitor is a guy of fairly ill repute because he's got another woman coming over and Graham goes off on that. And how does it matter? How does it manage to get stopped now that Luther has kind of broken Linda and gotten what he needs out of her? He brings Linda with them, and Linda's the one who draws him out. And that ultimately proves not to just be Graham's undoing in terms of his murder spree, it ends up being his undoing for the rest of his life. Did you guys see that coming? And how was your reaction to that? No, that definitely. Was I guess one of the surprise, the main surprise of this episode. Of course, the biggest surprise is why would the police just let her wander around the crime scene willy nilly, <laughs> without any supervision or whatever? And she just picks up the hammer, walks outside again. Nobody cares. Walks up to him, bam! Like what? <laughs> yeah, that was that so, was my biggest problem with that whole setup was the lack of control of a crime scene. You know, after yeah. the fact, we're just we're escorting the the guy out, and we're just going to let her wander around. They're, they're, so I totally expected contaminating evidence her to kill him because my read on the entire scene, why she was reluctant to help and why she was uh, um, so hesitant, wasn't about protecting him, wasn't about loving him. It was about him, about bringing shame on herself. And since that, since now that's out in the open and she has shamed him and her, or he has shamed her. And her, I totally saw the rage kill coming. 
I thought maybe it was kind of a burning bed situation where he was impotent and he was almost to the point of maybe raping her while he, you know, while he was kind of in the thralls of his murders, uh, that she was so detested by him and that she, you know, she, I think she did have feelings for this other guy, but it was almost like, I'm going to get you now because you've made my life hell. Yeah, and as we've seen throughout the episode, I mean, there was a point where um, where Linda and her boyfriend were together, and she was talking about how much she couldn't stand the fact that that Graham was actually able to not just function as as a lover again, but the fact that it was bringing them closer together when she didn't want to be part of the relationship anymore. So when she goes in and, and draws Graham out, and they're taking him away, and she walks in and sees his body in the um in the bathroom wrapped up in the shower curtain then of course she's going to turn around and realize that her chance to be happy is gone the guy that she was with forever had been brutalizing other women to to kind of make himself feel better towards her i can't see a whole lot of i mean i guess this definitely falls under crime of passion for me in that in that moment where you're looking at all these things kind of line up, what what really was to stop her from turning around and taking that hammer going, all right, you fucking prick, you're gone, and that's it. So we transition from episode four into episode five. In episode five, this actually wraps up the end of the season, and it starts a two-part single-crime story that's going to go from bad to worse to insane Mm -hmm. pretty damn quick. But let's set the scene here. It opens in an apartment building that is now emptied out, or at least an apartment uh, uh, space. And there's a man and his wife, and they are leaving the country. And they are attacked by a three-person crew who are demanding diamonds. And the guy who uh, is the art dealer, James Caradis, tells them he doesn't have them. So the leader gives him a clock. I think he's got like an hour to to get them to him. And he proves he's serious by cutting out his wife's tongue. Oof. How was that for an opening scene, boys? <laughs> well, given the one from episode three, not so bad. But I want to say that the crime, like the series of crimes that ensue after this is just... Most convoluted clusterfuck of a situation. I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that, I think that's the nice way to put it. Now, <laughs> to be fair, in, in terms of of what we see in this opening, we do not actually see the deed of his wife having her tongue removed. No, thankfully, it only happens. We only know this after Caritas walks into Luther's office looking for Ian. He's not looking for Luther, but Ian's not there. And he's standing there with a napkin, and there it is. And with that sort of impetus to get the case going, obviously, Luther's not going to just stand there and be like, um, can you come back in 10 minutes? They want to find out what the hell's going on. And we find out that the reason why Caritas does not have the diamonds is because his wife swallowed them. So. Right. That puts Luther and the cops and Caritas in a real pickle because 
The kidnappers have what they want, but they don't know it yet. Yeah, and that guy has shown no hesitation whatsoever to just not going to wait it out for her to, you know, let the diamonds come out naturally. He's just going to go right in and get them. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the clock is definitely ticking. Hey, on, right. a, on a total side note, we, we you know, we talked about Alice using eye make or the, the, the fake um, eye for just to throw people off of her scent. And I got to tell you, the face tattoo totally threw me i didn't recognize that actor at all because of it because all i can cue in on is that face tat and i thought boy that has got to be an amazing like kind of uh a mask without using a mask because you all you do is you focus in on the tattoos but then the tattoo becomes a deciding i mean it's kind of a distinctive tattoo so that kind of <clears throat> counterbalances the purpose, I think. Yeah, it just right, really but, threw me. At, but as we see later on in the episode, because it's not a permanent tattoo, it's just designed, again, to be yeah. a distraction and a misdirection. Once he clears it off, there's no real reason to distinguish him from anybody else. No, you're, you're an yeah, everyman but, again. But using it... Right, and, and, and at first, it was looking at it going, okay, because I've seen that similar sort of, of tattoo work on... Um, like Maori uh, uh, natives and, and people like that down in, in Australia and New Zealand, things like that. But for somebody in the UK, uh, I don't know if that's something that, that they're very much accustomed to. So, and and a, um, an American accent at that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that you point that out most because I have seen that actor in other shows before. The most notable one for me was White Collar, where he played a rival thief to the, the protagonist in that one. Um, but seeing him in that, that's a long way from what he's like in this one because he is absolutely merciless when it comes to getting what he wants. Yeah, these guys now, seem like on a totally different level than Luther should be capable of. It seems like they're well-financed and thought out and methodical. You know, it's yeah. almost like like he's going against, like, you know, De Niro in Heat. Like, it just seems like they're just way on top. But... Not so much. No. And it's at this point that Ian is brought into it, and we find out over the course of this that Ian knows the guy who set up the, the basically the kidnapping, who got this crew together to go after Caritas and get his diamonds, and Ian's in for a little bit more. Now, to this point, Ian Reed has been the... The longtime vet, he knows Luther. We see him as the guy who kind of balances John out and will cover up for him when he needs to or steer him in the right direction when he needs to. We never thought he was a dirty copper. Turns out he is. How did you guys yeah, take no, that I, part? I, I would actually say that if, if you'd have asked me before this episode to characterize the characters in the show, my characterization of Ethan, Ian would be that he's there to provide a contradiction to Luther as a straight-laced cop, you know, the, the, the by the book. And, and any deviation he's had from being by the book has been from association with Luther and trying to help Luther. Uh, obviously, that was not the case, but that was my original impression of him prior to this episode. Yeah, and I was thinking it would be more of a... I, I was kind of at one point thinking I, w- I wish they would have shown some hints of this in prior episodes, but then really when I thought more about it, it was more of a shock when it actually happened. Oh my God, he's crooked and he's in on this whole plot. 
So that had more of a, I guess, an impact than it would have if they kind of sprinkled it through the rest of the season. Yeah, and it's not like we were on episode 60 and he suddenly does this, right? We barely know the guy. Right, right, right. I I think that's where where I I allow it, and it's like, ooh, that's a great surprise. Because I, for some reason in my head canon, don't ask me why, because it's not even anywhere in here, I thought Ian and Luther were at one time partners. I inferred that somehow. And so it was like, it was like, oh, well, Luther and him, you know, they had to pick up other partners. And so, you know, there's like a little triangle of Ripley and Luther and Ian. And somehow Ian was kind of just, you know, trying to let Ripley know, you know, Luther's not as clean as you think he is. Again, this is not in the show, but like for some reason, that kind of information passed through into me. Yeah. Yeah, and and Neil Cross was had left that open-ended enough that I think for in terms of headcanon you were allowed to infer that however you wanted and it didn't play a huge role in how this story was going to pan out from start to finish. So, uh John comes up with a plan to try and both save Caritas's wife and get the people who have her and to this point, we've seen him do some really unorthodox bending and potentially breaking of the rules. He goes way overboard, I thought, in this one. And again, he under- he justifies it by saying this is about trying to keep his wife safe and the long play rather than just getting this done right now because we've only got like 20 minutes or however long to do it. But it involves doing something that Rose Teller really doesn't like um, in taking the diamonds out of the evidence safe, which according to Luther was worth about three and a half million pounds. Now they set up the deal where they drop the diamonds and Caritas flinches on it. Now we have that scene in the mall where we've got everybody set up and we've got the foot chase and we've got Benny, our tech guy who's back uh, helping out. How did you guys see how that mall drop went? Because we've seen this sort of thing in other police procedurals before where you're in a public space, you've got to drop, all eyes are on them, and we've got trying to get this sorted out before it gets any worse. Uh, what was your reaction to that? I like the fact that you get um, some some idea that Caritas doesn't really have as much vested in this as you think he does. Um, you know, you expect him to go one way and be concerned about his wife and by not going through with it, you kind of get your first hints that that may not be the case. Yeah. Or at least he's kind of figured out at this point, well, she's dead no matter what. I've at least got some diamonds money here. I'm just going to, you know, abscond with it and get out while I can and, you know, screw it. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. That was something I wasn't expecting. Really. The fact that Caritas does the drop and then it goes sideways and then we don't see Caritas again for a long time. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, I mean, it's like, wow, you are a really cold fish. I mean, you came walking into the station with your wife's tongue in a napkin in your hand, and all you're talking about is getting her back, and then you have the opportunity to do that if you just play along with what Luther and everybody needs you to do, and you renege on it, and you take the diamonds, and you bolt. I was like, wow, that that was one on a repeat viewing. I was like, I didn't catch that the first time, but that yeah. I that was a big flip. 
Yeah, so did he really care about his wife at all, or did he only really care about the diamonds she had? And when he, he couldn't get those, he's like, well, I got enough from somebody else. Good enough. You know. I, uh, I took it as um, him having no faith in Luther's plan, and so they would be uh, basically... In either scenario, his wife was dead in his head. You know, and that 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 was that was indicative of of his character. The, I think the problem I always sometimes have with crime dramas in general is the I would love and, and we know this from like uh, Breaking Bad. Evidence lockers are amazing reservoirs of wealth. Uh, I, I'm just you know I'm astonished that. Well, no, actually, they were using fugazis, weren't they? Those weren't real diamonds. True. Yeah. Okay. But we didn't know that at the time. Right. So they said, yeah, I, just I, like, I, I, I don't think he knew either. Yeah. yeah. They, the, Luther knew. They, they knew what they were, but the, okay. the, guy, the, 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 the guy didn't. didn't the, the husband didn't. Yeah. yeah. And, and the audience didn't. So. No, they they state it at the. It, they do state it in the evidence locker. So. See, I missed that. I thought that's, what? That's why they were evidence. Yes, because <laughs> it was in a fraud case. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, going back and watching through it, they didn't come right out and blatantly say that these are fakes. They did mention it was for a fraud case, but they didn't say they were fake diamonds. Because Teller reads John the riot act on how taking anything out of the evidence locker is sacrosanct under time all eternal and all that stuff, where she basically goes off like like John the Baptist. Um, so the importance of, of what Luther is doing is not overstated. It's made abundantly clear, but it's only when we get to finding out what ultimately happens with Caritas and those diamonds that they actually were fakes. So, um, but in the meantime, we get a chance to learn a little bit more about the American because his girlfriend is captured. And we find out that these are two people who have long histories of doing a lot of dastardly things. I did like how... There was, for uh, Law & Order SVU fans, there was a not-so-subtle plug in here where Luther tells Ripley to call a Detective Munch in New York with a special victims unit. <laughs> I don't know if anybody caught that, but I was like, oh. Uh, no, I didn't catch it at all. Yeah, there was one point where he does that. He just says, and Richard Belzer is probably going, huh, somebody mentioned me? But yeah, he says, call a Detective Munch in New York special victims unit. So, so does, this um, mean, does this mean it takes... That Luther takes place in the snowball in the child's mind? It could. I don't know. I mean, if it was a medical drama, I could see that, but it's a cop drama, so I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. So, But now we've got the understanding that Luther has, has made contact with this guy, Daniel Sugarman, and they've worked out a new deal. You've got one hour to get what uh, he wants, and it's 100% of the money, you get 100% of his wife back. 80%, 80%. And if you run late, that's it. So John is really feeling the screws tighten. In the meantime, Ian is still trying to figure out a way out of this, and he's manipulating it from the other side and lying to John, which John has done to Luther a couple of times, as we've seen. So things are unraveling pretty fast here. And it ultimately encapsulates in both Tom and Jessica not making it out in one piece, literally. Right. Yeah, and the interesting part of, of this to me was how if you took Ian out of the scenario, things would have worked out totally different. But Ian's interaction and trying to cover and make things better 
actually led to the whole scene falling apart. And he even admits to it, which is which I thought was a great scene that, you know, it's my fault. I shouldn't have done this. Yeah, and and the the interactions between Ian and the fence, the guy who had set up this whole deal, it was interesting watching how you see that unraveling of Ian's psyche a bit where he understands that I mean he did all this just so he can get a share of it he didn't orchestrate it he didn't this isn't his whole big thing it was okay they need somebody on the inside to kind of make sure this goes smoothly and I'm in for a cut all right I'll take a cut but the fact that it goes so wrong and you see what that takes out of Ian um you know this is so different than what we've seen leading up to now. How did you take how Ian's progression goes, not just from here, but as we're going to see over the next, the rest of this episode and the next episode, just how far undone he comes? Well, they emphasize over and over again that these, like, these schemes basically run on the fact that there is no blood. And they got a guy who, minute one, starts shedding blood. And so everything, you know, um, so, you you know what I mean? Like he he signed up for a heist and is now complicit in murder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he gets his hands dirty himself because he takes out the fence. He chokes him with his tie in a rather unconvincing way. I thought. I thought that too. <laughs> like, like boy, that wasn't choreographed very well. But you get a situation with a standoff between Ian and Luther once Luther finds out that Ian is in on the deal. Okay. This let me let me let me let me stop right there for just a second. Okay. When Luther realizes in a very vague way that Ian may be in on it, this has to do with when he braces the passport guy because the passport guy says not again. And that, and Luther travels back on that, and nothing is mm-hmm. said. But are we to infer that Ian had also braced the same passport guy? Because we know that they're they're somehow they're going to be traveling using like three passports deep. Yes, because yeah. the fence tells Ian before he kills him about the guy who'd made the the passport forger. Okay. Right. So. Ian has a way to get to him. The interesting part of this is that they end up coming together for two totally different reasons. It's after you leave the crime scene and you see uh, Caritas's wife dead and uh, the fence's nephew dead. And you have that moment between Ian and John where John's like, you know, you okay? And he's, and, and Ian's trying to shake him off and then comes back and says, no, I'm not. You think it's because of what Ian witnessed at the scene that he's going after Sugarman to kill him because of that, not because Ian's covering his tracks. Mm -hmm. So they're going, they're both trying to go, they're converging at the same point through two totally different reasons. And what happens from there through the rest of this episode and all of the next episode all happens because of that miscommunication between Luther and Ian, where Ian thinks Luther's trying to set him up when he gets to the hotel room before Ian and gets Sugarman, and then Ian kills Sugarman anyway, and then books it 
when he thinks that Luther's trying to take him down. I mean, yeah, it's really chaotic from here. Were you guys, I mean, I, and I know because I'm lucky because I've seen this enough times that I can kind of put that thread together, but I would imagine that was pretty uh, uh, chaotic for you guys as well. Yeah, I really wish yeah, I well, had the chance to watch it twice, but I, I didn't get the time this so. Yeah, and, and how Ian missed Luther at point-blank range, I have no idea, but, but, but still, I mean, up until that point, yeah, it was... You know, he's just he's just trying to like close every loose end he can. You know, he shoots sugar maybe before he can say any more. Which at this point, he's got to know Luther knows what's up at this point. Um, but, well, you know, well still- and let's be honest, Eric. If Billy could miss Frank at point blank on a carousel, yeah. then Ian is not quite the shooter that, that he yeah, well, was. Yeah, cortisol is a hell of a drug. Um, uh-huh. But uh, you know, I think I I got dis disassociated with the narrative because of. You know, I focus in on what John is saying more than most other characters in a scene, and I was like, "Wait a minute, John, you're gonna you're you're gonna cover up for Ian. Why are you gonna cover up for Ian?" Like, and that seemed to be his main mode. Like, I'm not lying to you. I am going to cover this up. We just need to figure it out. I've always been amazed at, especially, slight you know, dirty cop dramas on how they can make something look another way than what actually happened. And I was, mm-hmm. I, I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm moving closer to the TV to get, to get more information. Kind of like, how are you going to reverse this? Well, yeah, also, and, and, and then with, at the end, we, we do see how they can do that kind of thing you just said to also frame themselves, but you know, we get a little ahead of ourselves, but yes. And I think that was a good bit of a callback to Ian having, John's back as we went through, uh, as he went through the stuff that he did after Manson's fall. That's right, because Ian did know, cover for him, help. correct? Absolutely. If not outright, then you know that he he heard the the screams in the background, so he at least knew more was going on. So uh, yeah, I kind of took that as, as his helping him out. John was getting the information. Exactly. So, but yeah, as you touched on, Mose, we've got to get to the last part of this story, which is... What happens with Zoe? And well, before we before we get there, I want to back up and, and talk about Ripley's takedown of Caritas and a little bit on Ripley yeah, as we go, go forward. For it. Because go for it. you know, in the first half of this season, my opinion of Ripley was kind of like, okay, he's the junior guy, he's the exposition exposition guy, he's all that. The second half of this season, Ripley definitely moved up several notches in my uh, interest in him as a character because he had a lot of interaction. Um, especially in the resolution of the crime scenes, right? Like he was the one who uh, was at the house for the takedown in the last episode. In this episode, he's the one who gets to go take down Caritas as he's trying to, to hawk the fake diamonds. And we just see a progression of Ripley being more independent and more competent than I think mm-hmm. we saw in the first half of the season. Yes. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and he does it in a very economic way in that when Warren Brown is on camera we don't see him doing anything other than what he's been tasked to do. So there's not a lot of embellishment. There's not a lot of, of other things going on. It's just, here's what I've got. I'm on the case. So, and and his coming up from being essentially a beat cop, he still has that mindset very much in his, in his makeup of, okay, here's the crime. Here's what I've got. Here's how I figure it out. Here's how I get the bag. And it is nice that, that they give Ripley kind of the freedom to go and do that, whereas opposed to he's got to be joined with John at the hip at all times. 
I did like he gets that autonomy a little bit more over these last couple of episodes. Uh, anybody else with a, with their thoughts on Ripley? I I I just think that he starts to endear ourselves. At first, we're kind of set into Luther's world as like Ripley's partner. Ripley is our eyes, and Ripley then starts to act outside of of just an exposition dump. He he starts to become a full fledged character in in all this. In fact, we need him mm-hmm. to. Yeah, and we're definitely going to need him to before the season is out. But again, we're we're running short on this one, so let's get to the 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 last part of this, which again goes back to Zoe. And we were as in episode four, Zoe didn't have a big role in this. It starts out with Luther and Zoe having a conversation in his office, and it's not the conversation again that John wants. Um. In a lot of ways, I I know that we we knew this was coming because Zoe to this point had had explained to Mark what had happened the night before with John, and Mark gave her the ultimatum of make up your mind: either you're going to be with John, or you're going to be with me, and if you're going to be with me, you cannot be with John anymore at all. No contact, no nothing. Done. End it. And Zoe goes to have that talk with Luther, and this conversation. And again, this this always seems to me to be, in a lot of ways, the weakest part of, of this first season of, of Luther, because if you really break it down and look at Luther and Zoe's relationship, based on what we see in these six episodes... There's not much man, of one there. Mess. Yeah, no. it's, it's not good. It's not a good relationship at all. So, and this, in his reaction to this, is almost comical. In I, I say that in a very, very, you know different ways like you know he's breaking windows which leads us to evidence later on that john when he gets angry will break things and do things and you need that for the narrative to continue to make sense but that that they're they're it's just a a very gasoline type uh relationship so one thing that did bother me when zoe's like we need to talk today and luther's Mm -hmm. like can it be tomorrow and she's like no his response, well, I am currently trying to save a human life, and that's kind of time-sensitive. Yes. I, I, I mean, I don't see why he didn't, I mean... <laughs> yeah, no, the timing of this conversation could not have been worse. But, I mean, and, I don't, why didn't he say, I am trying to save a person from dying. Whatever you have should be, able, should be prioritized below that. And I think a lot of that comes to what we've seen over the first three episodes, where you had Alice explaining to John that the reason why things fell apart with Zoe is because you didn't let her in. And John has always, at least in that regard, is from what we've seen, he's been very protective of that because he didn't want everything that he deals with every day to really ingratiate itself into his relationship with Zoe, even though it did by his not bringing her in and getting her involved and and not really allowing himself to... to to process all that stuff. Instead, he compartmentalized it. And Zoe, what really stuck out with me in this conversation is how she, in a lot of ways, gaslights him. To mm-hmm. say, well, we knew we were, this is what we both wanted. This is what we knew what was going to happen. You knew it. I knew it. And, and we just have to accept it. And John, for all of his brilliance and all his ability to put pieces together and figure puzzles out, and 
understand people and read people and respond to people. This is the one thing he cannot figure out. And I know there are people who would look at this and go, well, that that doesn't make sense. But if you understand relationships at all and you understand how people think at all, there's always that area where you just you have a soft spot. Uh, and I don't mean that in a romantic sort of way. I mean that in an in an inability to process. Oh my gosh! The reality that you have. You're hitting this, and it just it just reared back at the end, near the end of this season. Alice tells him that people yep. lie to themselves constantly. Yes, they do. And and actually, I was going to transition into that because. Once we have this conversation with Zoe, and and you're right, Sean, John absolutely loses it, chucks a phone through a window, and everybody's there standing looking at him, including Shank. Mm-hmm. But then Shank's in the background, and he doesn't say anything. He's just there. He's just observing. But then he goes and meets Alice in a church, of all places, and... That conversation is even as interesting as what happens with Zoe because we see Alice do something that we, to this point, have not seen her do either. She tells John that she was, or John tells her that she was right about what she said about there not being love in the world. And she turns around and says, no, John, you were right. Which leads right into what you were observing most about how people lie to themselves all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And how we, because you cannot, there are certain truths that we cannot accept. It doesn't matter how you draw it up. It doesn't matter how you diagram it, explain it to us. You can tell us eight ways until Sunday. There are certain things that you cannot force yourself to accept. So Alice, in that particular case, is telling John that she loves him? Yep. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and without and coming I think that right was out a, and saying it. And that kind of goes back to the, the teller line about, you know, Men think women won't change, and they do. And I think that was trying to show a little bit of change in Alice and how she's progressed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And from the the not having any feeling character that was introduced to now that she thinks that she loves John. So what was yeah. once what you know what was you know she did as mischief and uh, changing the state of play. Now her arc is I'm with you. I will do. Mm-hmm. I I love you enough to do things that you don't want me to do. Right. Or that you want me to do and won't ask to do. That's right. Why are you here, John? Why are you here? And and what's the declarative statement that, that seals that for John? What he drops in the offering box. Yeah. He takes that wedding ring off that he so proudly put on his finger in front of Zoe on the bridge to show that this is who he's with and this is what matters to him. He takes that same ring off and drops it in the box. And in the meantime... We think everything's going to work out, but then it doesn't because later that night, Luther gets a call from Zoe. Ian is going for the mad scramble, the last hostage he can take. Yep. And this scene was, you know, it was funny because at the end of the last episode, we placed our bets on what was going to happen here. We had an idea of of, of who's going to make it, who's not, and it was three, four to one, that something was going to happen to Zoe. And something does. 
Because and I did not see that coming. <laughs> yeah, Jason, yeah, Jason, why don't you tell us what happened? Yep. <laughs> yeah, uh, Ian uh, goes through with it. Yeah, he gets uh, Zoe to call and tell uh, John supposedly to come uh, so he can kind of have a standoff. And Zoe does the opposite and gives John the warning, which leads to Ian taking care of her. I wasn't thinking that he was just going to, I like, it seemed almost accidental, but he, he made it, you know, he's like, don't tell him I'm here. And she, you know, freaks out and says, Ian's here. And cause you know, John's obviously looking for him at this point because he's kind of in, in the wind. And as soon as that goes off the silence, I totally, as much as I, I've seen these episodes at least three times, I completely forgot what happened. And I was shocked. In fact, my girl said, Dad, what's wrong? And I said, oh, I forgot about this part. <laughs> well, and, and it wasn't just the fact that it ends the way it does with Ian shooting Zoe. What did you guys think about how, how he responds to that? Because obviously he is, his brain is scrambled eight ways till Sunday. And he's trying so hard just to keep things from falling even more apart and trying to keep himself from getting implicated or, or anything. And the worst thing that could happen for him, and to say the least, the worst thing that could happen for John happens. The... I will give the actor that plays Ian all the credit in the world because his reaction to all that was chilling for me. And I was, you know, I thought either Alice or uh, Zoe would die. And if you had asked me who would be the one to kill Zoe, uh, that would have been I would have thought it was Alice. Yeah, Alice would was the front runner, but I, Ian would have been last, dead last. Right, right. Luther, I put Luther before him. Mm-hmm. So John and, gets at, home. As I say, at the end though, it's kind of the only play he's got left. It's like you know he, they both know each other's guilty of something, yeah. and it's like, well, I'm not going to be the one to go down for it. That's the, the only play Ian's got at this point, right? And John gets there and finds Ian dead, or not Ian, but Zoe dead. Ian is gone, and the house is a wreck. And yeah, even which, though John is there and he's trying, I mean, and, and he's obviously despondent and he's looking around and realizing what Ian did. And the last we see of him is him running off the rain because he knows full well that now he is the target. And I totally missed that. I guess I was so focused on in shock of, of the actual death that I missed that he was set up for it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I didn't grasp why he was running and not just sticking around to try to start putting the case together against Ian. So I'm Jason, glad that, you're that, not alone. You are not alone in that. I totally blew that off. Um, had Luther fired a gun in this episode? No, he was holding one. Yeah. Because he had the standoff with, with Ian in the, in the hotel room, but he didn't shoot it. It's the simplest thing in the world to show if you have shot a gun in the last five minutes or ten minutes, okay. right? It's, I mean, the powder residue on the hands is, is unavoidable. He could have simply said, Test me, I didn't do it. Yeah, and you and do a paraffin test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could do that, but at the same time, in, in and again, as as uh, 
as Mo's pointed out, cortisol is an amazing thing. Um, <laughs> it's a hell of a drug. You know, it is because you know I, I don't I don't fault John for running in in only that because all the evidence that you're looking around I I don't think that I honestly I think the last thing on his mind is he's sitting there with his dead wife in his lap looking around at everything that Ian did is going oh well they'll check the cortisol that there's no powder burns on my hands and I'll be okay you know it's I mean he he's probably more at that point more messed in the head than Ian is so because he's on the run and now the cops including Teller and Shank and Ripley and Ian are all looking for him. He goes the only place he can go. And he goes to Alice. Dun, dun, dun. This, this scene was interesting for me on a couple of levels because it's not one where Alice is just there by herself and there's a banging on the door. It starts off very subtly in that Alice knows that something's off and then she goes out and finds John in her kitchen. Uh, what does and she pick up? Because that's not a scalpel. She, she gets picks something. Up tweezers. Okay. She grabs a pair of tweezers out of a out of a cup, I think, in her bathroom. What an amazing weapon! Yeah. Well, we've seen her use a needle. Yeah. We've seen her ha- grab a knife. Um, you know, there that seems to be her her preferred weapon of choice is something sharp, or at least with a pointy yeah. end. And yeah, she likes sharp objects. And when John tells her about Zoe, um, it, it, it amazes me how Ruth Wilson was able to keep her face that still. Because your natural implica- or inclination is to kind of, you know, flinch a little bit and be like, oh, damn. But because Alice is Alice, the first thing she asks John is, did you kill her? Yeah. <laughs> no. And then she admits that she liked Zoe. And because he underst- she understood what John what Zoe meant to John. And now John understands why it is that Alice is gonna be able to help him out because she knows that it's Ian, he knows that it's Ian, and now they're both on the same mission. For and, slightly different reasons. Well, and in some way it seems as though she can guide him into saying I, I know that I don't have any emotions, so I can become the clear-headedness of this entire caper, but you need to get yourself in check because you are not like me. Yeah, and this is where she, she lectures John on, on why self-deception isn't going to help. And then she asks him again, why are you here? And it's once John, and the fact that John asks her to help him catch Ian... I mean, she goes practically giddy. She's just like, okay, when, when do we start? Right. Let, let's do this. And in the meanwhile, you have Ripley, who, again, we've alluded to, is now kind of coming into his own here, and Shank. And they're going back through Zoe's place, walking back through everything again. And we get two different sorts of perspectives here. We have Shank being very cold and very analytical saying that everything that's here is consistent with the idea that John killed her. And if it was staged, whoever did it, you're a really cold son of a bitch. And Ripley's looking around it, and obviously he's got his affinity for John as a partner, considering, as we understood in the first episode, that he's been trying to be partnered with him for 
months. He's got that conflicted with the reality that he's got to do his job. But even then, we go back to the Alice Morgan case of when they're looking around and he goes, this isn't right. Just something isn't, something doesn't click here. Right, because everything's smashed all around. Like, as if someone went off on like a, a big rage, you know, rage orgy. But then why is she strangled or beat to death? She's shot, which doesn't make sense to him. It, it doesn't click. Mm-hmm. And, and Shank calls him out on that. And Ripley flat out says he wants John to be innocent of it. But if, it, if he's not, then he'll do his job. And that is put to the test when Alice and John realize that they found the gun that Ian used to kill Zoe, and they've got to go get it. Now, to me, again, this is like what happened in episode three when uh, John put the stocking cap on his head and the sunglasses, but he still has the big pea coat. He still has his gray jacket. I mean, if you know John at all, it doesn't take much to figure out that's who it is, except... Alice jokingly gives him one of her stockings to put on his head, and they go get the gun. Well, remember, remember they were going after the one piece of hard evidence, right? Right. Oh, totally. And they lampshaded it because 95% is reasonable doubt. Like, Yeah, even even Teller references that later. Yeah, so that, that little disguise was enough that you a person on the stand could say, he cannot say 100% unequivocally it was him. Who is yeah, our but character? I, 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 thought, I thought at least I thought at least for sure he would at least like put the mask over his head, not just just wear a hat. I'm like, yeah. you say he's covering his face up, and I guess I, I guess Shake never did. I directly look at him, and he made sure he didn't, didn't quite look at him. So yeah, I mean, I, I can buy it, but it just seems kind of weird. You know, it's like you're not even going to try and really disguise yourself. Yeah, they had to act and, well, fast. And, and when they did do the jump, Alice took the knife that she had pulled on John earlier and had that against Shank's neck. So it does make you hard to kind of look over when you've got a six-inch kitchen knife at your jugular. Yeah. Who, but I did like the bit where, where Ripley, where he grabs, obviously Justin, or uh, Luther's going to go for Justin, drags him out of the car, and he's asking him really quick what's going on, and what does Ripley say to him? You got to make it look right. Hit me. Yeah. Who's the character that comes in and wants to put a lid on, uh, make it all airtight until we have Luther in custody, and he's looking for basically the right person that can be that it is not quite uh in John's corner and he ends up picking Ripley obviously but who is that character cuz it, it seems to come out of nowhere oh the the big guy in the suit the, yeah. the bald guy yeah he is we see him in episode 1 where he's the one who asks <clears throat> teller about bringing John back and i think he's like the commissioner or he's teller's boss okay so he's like I guess he'd be like a, an assistant commissioner or a police commissioner, something like that. Okay. Okay. So, uh, yeah, he's the one who's, yeah, he's trying to put the lockdown on all of it and make sure everything is, is airtight. But I think that's, this is like, yeah, it's only the second time we've seen him in the series. So, um, because they were able to get the gun and get rid of it, that sets up a showdown with Ian and John with all eyes watching, not just the CCTV, but everybody else watching, in the middle of an open space. Now, we've seen this sort of thing before, if you've watched any other crime shows of a similar nature, where you've got this sort of thing where somebody meets in an open area and all eyes are on them. And this conversation between Ian and Luther, 
goes in a couple of different ways. How did you guys take it? I liked it because it's two guys that know each other very well because they worked with each other for, you know, how many years. And, you know, they're each trying to play each other. Like, you know, I know what's going to get you riled up. I know what's going to get you riled up. And, you know, all Ian's got to do is get get Luther to go just a little bit crazy and, you know, bang, he's done. And, you know, all his problems are over. And, you know, Luther's trying to get him to go crazy and run away or whatever he's going to do to get him to go off and, you know, incriminate himself or whatever. So I, I thought it was pretty good. I was so frustrated with Ian, but that I, I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be like Luther in that particular moment. But he's making sure that he doesn't say anything uh to incriminate himself i'm just like ooh, and then they have that little whisper between them about about what what was it about the diamonds oh that's right because there's a little b plot mark is now an ally and he's in the uh the office talking to shank and he's gonna get the diamonds is the one who has the diamonds yes because that's the big physical evidence against ian Mm mm-hmm and we see Ian trying to keep goading John and the the SWAT guy sitting there looking at him going, you know, he's got something in his pocket, he's got something in his pocket, he's got something in his pocket. And who's the one who steps in? Ripley does. And I didn't see that coming, at least not right away. I mean, we understood that it was well established Ripley's loyalty to John, but he's willing to throw his career away at this point because he knows something is wrong. Well, he was been dubbed as the yeah. honest man in all of this. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he's already, I think, put together that he knows it's Ian. You know, he's he, enough parts have been proven to him that he knows something's not right. Ian's not acting right. Ian's, and and so when when the the chips are down and it comes time to do it, he's not going to let Ian get what Ian's after. Yeah, even though it might end up being the end of his career, which at least in this respect it looks like it is. You know, they, she you know, Teller took his gun badge and, and said, "You know, walk this guy out of here, whatever. You can get him out of here." Yeah, so you know, it, it's, yeah. And then Ian's and, got Ian's got the uh, special little camera in his locker so that he can see if anybody's been in there, which I found to be a little weird. And then it got a little bit weirder with the whole uh, I'm you know tracking people down. And he has his little device to go ahead and try to track Mark down. Right. But before he can get to Mark, who gets to him first? Alice gets to Mark first. And we get that that interesting point where she brings Alice to John, or she brings Mark to John. And it's not just, hey, buddy, how you doing? Are you doing okay? It becomes a knockdown, drag out. Mark tries to take John out. Yeah. And... To Paul McGann's credit, understanding that Idris Elba is a big guy, you know, he sells it for all it's worth. And and clearly these are two men who both love the same woman in different ways. And how John is able to convince Ian, or to convince Mark to help him out, I think speaks yeah, that a lot was actually to the a... reality that, that this is going to get the guy who actually killed him. It wasn't me, Mark. And that, that... Whatever you think of me. We need to get the guy who actually did. That. I had problems with that because that was the one part in the, the episode where I kind of got thrown out because, you know, they, they're Mark's going after after um, Luther. And then all of a sudden they cut and they cut back and they're on the same page. You don't actually get to see that understanding. And so yeah, I would have liked to have seen earned. that a bit more. 
I would have liked to have seen that a bit more, but I think like us, they were pressed for time. So, um, you know, we get the eventual showdown between Ian and Mark, because as, as you said, Sean, Ian tracks, or as Mo said, Ian tracks Mark down and finds that Luther and Alice are waiting for him, but Luther gets the drop on him, and Ian's got a double-barreled shotgun. And John gets it away from him, and at this point, Ian is begging John to kill him. Right. And, and John won't do it. He, want, mm-hmm. he wants justice, so Ian decides, I'm going to give you the shank right in the gut, and you, you're making me do this. So it's almost like a tide turn, like, oh, crap. Uh, Ian's going to get away with all this. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Ian finally goes off and, and rides John for everything he did for him over the whole course of his career with John. But that's not what gets him. It's when Ian starts bringing Zoe back in. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was pretty, that was a pretty transparent tactic. And the thing is, John knew it was a transparent tactic, but it was still kind of working. Yeah, it was. And at that point, of course, we're expecting John to grab the shotgun and shoot him, even though he's been stabbed. Mm-hmm. But who ends up with the shotgun after that whole fracas? Alice has. And how Alice resolves this, I thought, in Neil Cross's case, was pretty ingenious. Yeah, I, I was really, like, I was, I was impressed when uh, she took the vote. Yeah, how about that? She was, like, at a little of a uh, death democracy. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know? th- 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 that's kind of another thing I didn't see coming with this end of this yeah. episode, the same as in the last episode. That you know, I mean, John finally does the right thing, where he's like, "No, I'm, I'm going to arrest him, even though he's done unspeakable things to me, to you know, whatever, to my ex-wife, you know." And yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to just take him in. I don't care. And then no, let's put up to a vote. Yeah, <laughs> and the vote, like, the vote did not go the way Luther like, wanted it to. Luther's up. John's opposed. I'm in favor. We need a tiebreaker, Mark. <laughs> and and Ian does the same thing to Luther. He does to Mark. Yep. And, except Mark isn't John. Mark can't see what what Ian is doing. Either though, even though Luther is trying to explain it to him. I mean, obviously they're both emotionally keyed way up. And Alice or is sitting there with the gun waiting for the vote and Ian keeps prodding him and prodding him and prodding him and Mark just says, just shoot him. Yep. Bang, I- there he goes. And I like how, like, Alice was cu- cool as a cucumber when literally everyone else in the scene was like, yes. freaking the- <laughs> She just wanted to hear what, what, the, what, the, what the vote was. And you right. know, if Mark said no, she would have just shrugged her shoulders and walked away. Yeah. Yeah, most likely. Yeah, but I think she knew going in that, that he was going to vote her way. I don't think she ever had a doubt. Well, and I think if anything, Alice, being who she is, could have manipulated the situation enough to get what she wanted, which yep. would have been Ian dead anyway. And um, she also wants John free and not yes. in custody. That's, I mean, her goal is to have John. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And real quick, before we wrap this thing up, there was one other part of this that, that I thought was really interesting because to the point about how Alice plays this really cool we finally see Shank with Ripley in that interrogation room, and Shank goes off. Mm-hmm. We finally see that go away, and and I thought that was really striking. There was that point where he freaks out, and, and that made me flinch. 
because at this point we had not seen him that way. So it'll be interesting for me to see going forward with those two characters, especially because there had been that buildup of that relationship in a very short time, how that's going to be resolved and how that's going to play in for Luther as well. So, well, and Shank wasn't wrong. He knew he saw all the, all the, the whole path was, was right there. And for Luther to be off the hook doesn't make sense. There's still that naggingness. And, and finally he breaks. Mm-hmm. And, and Ripley was loyal to the very, very end. And, and I don't know. I mean, going forward, who knows if we're going to see him again? I hope we do, but we're going to have to wait for season two to, to, to understand that. So really fast because yeah, we're, we're, we're running short. Guys, if you can, in 25 words or less, sum up your thoughts on Luther season one. Sean, go. I just want to see what happens in season two where he's at at the beginning. I could see him being in jail. I could see him being a cop again or anywhere in between. Eric, what about you? Yeah, it was a good first season, maybe a couple of low points, but otherwise for six episodes, I mean, it was a pretty much, you know, good nonstop uh, thrill ride. And yeah, I mean, I can't wait to see what happens next season. I've I've been wrong about how things ended so far, so I'm I'm, I'm not even going to try and predict where it's going. I hope everything works out for the best, which hopefully it does because it lasts another couple of seasons. So hopefully he's still a police officer doing police work. We'll find out. Jason would dare to make a prediction at this point. No, no predictions, but I, I definitely am, as everybody said, interested to see what happens next. Because right now, Teller's got an empty office. So uh, there's got to be some somebody to come back to go to work. Uh, but yeah, as a season overall, you know, it started out, had some hits or misses, took it a while. But, you know, in six episodes, I think they did a lot. So it's very, very interesting ride. And Mose, I'll give you the last word. Um, well, here we are, the Broken Boys. And we, over six episodes, have seen a man become fully broken down and i'm very curious how that plays out but i still have the spiders in my head and i will go down with luther all the way down all right so i guess that means we get to sit tight and figure out what's going to happen between season one and season two and again season five of luther is coming up very soon so uh, later on this year so if you are one to follow along with us you are more than welcome to and you can drop us a line at the incomparable.com and let us know what you think of this first season if you haven't already and kind of give us your thoughts input on what you'd like to see us do in season two so uh with that we'll wrap this case book up and how about we thank everybody who is taking part in this one so uh eric scott jason johnson Sean Shibley, the inimitable Philip Moselak. And uh, I'm your co-pilot in this one, Devin Higgins. And thank you very much for listening. And we will talk to you again in a couple weeks for season two. Bye.